in a democracy, shouldn't it be the case that every child is a wanted child? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can I get a pulse? Barely. Occasionally, very rarely in fact, the subjects of my work in the New Hampshire State Senate, which I completed nearly 20 years ago, those issues occasionally raise themselves yet again. Like so many issues I worked on, gun safety, preserving water resources, one I worked on back then and was taken aback by the opposition was requiring insurance companies to include in vitro fertilization in their medical coverage. After all, men's physical challenges and reproductive capability are generally covered, and the pro-life forces claim their reason for being is to help to create families. Well, I'll tell you, I was truly surprised and amazed, I must say, when the Catholic Church came out fighting against the legislation when, from their professed family values, I had certainly figured they'd strongly be in favor. But they were dead set determined to defeat the legislation. The bill had a lot of support from the public, but was eventually defeated. By a number of interested parties, the church and the insurance industry, for starters. Well, here we are decades later. A lot has changed. The Right to Life movement, which again claims to be about sharing the joys of procreation, had a big victory in repealing Roe versus Wade. But when people want to get pregnant and find they cannot, somewhat surprisingly, there's still a difficult struggle socially and emotionally. According to our guest today, infertility is met with silence, shame, stigma, and isolation, and maybe healing. Our guest is Maria Novotny. She is a co-curator, co-editor of the new book, Infertilities, a Curation, and she's assistant professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and co-director of The Art of Infertility. Her research on infertility and reproductive justice has been published in peer-reviewed journals, including Rhetoric of Health and Medicine, Rhetoric Review, and Technical Communication Quarterly. And the ART, and that's A-R-T in capital letters of infertility, was the 2018 recipient of the Hope Award for Innovation, given by Resolve, the National Infertility Association, for its work communicating patient experience through arts programming. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Maria. Yes, thanks for having me. Today's topic may seem to be a stretch from the name of this show, Keeping Democracy Alive, and in many ways, it is kind of a stretch, but there are so many aspects of a healthy, functioning democracy, the society and cultural values. As we know, oftentimes there is strife and disagreement over these cultural topics and social and moral topics, so too it is with what we expect regarding family or other participating members of our culture. And as history has shown, not all who live in America are equally welcome and valued, mm. racism and gender discrimination being the most obvious, whether or not to have a child is really nobody's business but, but one's own, yet one of the goals of your book is calling attention to breaking through the silence, shame, stigma, and isolation surrounding trouble conceiving or bearing a child. Perhaps in part because I'm a straight man, 
I'm not familiar with these painful issues, and pardon, please, my naive ignorance. I don't get why there's silence, shame, stigma, and isolation regarding infertility. Again, it's, it's nobody else's business. I wonder if you could please explain, Maria. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair question. And I will say, um, when we started this organization and this project, it was over 10 years ago. And um, over the last 10 years, there's been more of a cultural discourse really just around infertility. So I think that some of the silence and shame is shifting a little bit. You see, for instance, popular culture figures like Michelle Obama even coming out and disclosing that she needed to use um, assisted reproductive technologies to have, you know, Sasha and Malia. Um, and you see other individuals really trying to break that stigma and, and come forward with that. So that's shifted a little bit. But I will say for the vast majority of individuals, um, when you get the initial diagnosis, there still is just a lot of silence, shame, and honestly, um, reorientation with one's own identity. Um, mm. So much of the narrative around reproductive health, especially for women, is the idea that you need to right, protect and control one's reproductive health. Right. Um, and infertility comes at this moment where suddenly you realize you can't really control or yeah. protect it. Um, and it's kind of outside of those controls. And so um, there's a lot of, I think, just personal searching um, and identification with what does it mean that I'm no longer fitting those larger cultural narratives around, you know, being a woman and being able to decide when and how I'm going to have my family and suddenly, and if I want to have one even, right. And then suddenly realizing that maybe that path to parenthood mm. might not be the ways in which we always expected it. And I, in the past, I've worn a button that just says choice on it, but suddenly uh, if, if one, you know, wants to have, to get pregnant and can't, that choice is sort of taken away. And boy, that's that's some tough stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's not at the top of the uh, political agenda, certainly, but it, it's something that uh, does affect a lot of people that, uh, you know, we about choice and, and freedom. And it is addressable. There are a lot of hurdles to it, I mean, medically and in terms of cost. And, and I wonder... Uh, do, <laughs> I can imagine sometimes people blame themselves. What about that, please? I think there is. There can be a lot of blaming, a lot of self-doubt over, um, you know, what it means to not be able, again, right, to to kind of create life and have that come into the world. Um, but I will say just in terms of choice as well, you know, we really understand this to be kind of a reproductive justice issue, even though, to your point, you're saying it's not often considered an issue of choice. But if you think about reproductive justice and even um, the ways in which we define it, we really draw from like Sister Song. Mm. Um, and their definition is the ability not only to decide um, to not have a family or to, uh, you know, ab abort a pregnancy if one wants, but the, also mm. the ability really to to have a family and also to raise one in safe and sustainable communities and environments. Um, and the reality is simply that the finances of it mm. um, and the emotional pain of it, it does not always mean that one's going to be able to, to meet those goals. And so we're really trying to reframe this as um, an issue of choice um, and as being able to, right, to have equitable access to, to reproductive health. 
And we all know that, you know, one of the real difficulties in, in American society is uh, parents, uh, single, whatever, who may not have the uh, financial means and may not, you know, be the best parents. And, you know, it, it's really, uh, they they don't necessarily choose uh, to be parents. Sometimes it just kind of happens. And that's and here, you know, if you have people who want to be and, you know, have a kid and have a family, uh, you know, it just, it's it's something we have to deal with. I, I want to ask about the genesis of this book. Tell us about that and, and about the organization behind it. How did, how did you three, there's three of you, how did you all come together? Yeah, so really the three of us all connected because we all have experiences around our own um, diagnoses with infertility. We all have different diagnoses of infertility. So infertility doesn't come one size fit all. Um, for instance, mine is unexplained. So I've lived for over 10 years with an unexplained infertility diagnosis. Wow. Um, hmm. But we all we all came together. Largely, we were um, living in Michigan at that time. And I met Elizabeth Walker, uh, who was also living in Michigan and curating um, her first exhibit that was just patient-created art um, that she was doing with her peer-led support group. And I was running the peer-led support group in the other side of the state of Michigan, and we just kind of formed a bond. We were both kind of taking a break. I wasn't doing any treatment. She wasn't doing any treatments for fertility at the time either. And we were both really trying to just form a community of support, um, largely because, like you were saying in, the, in earlier uh, to your question, there really just was a lot of silence still around mm -hmm. navigating who to talk to and just un having other people understand the real pains that you were going through in terms of grieving this idea that, you know, I may never carry a pregnancy. I may never become a parent in some capacity. And so we met and um, decided to really uh, come together and create this as a larger organization. She at the time didn't have any idea um, or capacity to really uh, develop this into an actual organization. It was going to be just a one-time type of exhibit. Mm. And I was at the time doing my dissertation and really interested in uh, ideas of the ways in which we use language to describe infertility and describe um, femininity uh, and the ways in which failure is often assumed or coupled with ideas of infertility. And so we decided to do um, a larger project that really looked at the patient perspective of what it meant to be um, infertile and navigate, you know, the personal pains, but also the larger cultural societal pains when someone asks you and they were very well meaning you know do you have any kids or are you going to have kids soon and not knowing necessarily how to answer that question um, especially when you're in the midst of treatment so we came together and then robin um also joined us because she was also doing a lot of creative writing around that time um and working in michigan as well so the three of us kind of happened to to start this organization and then COVID hit and then we decided we really had to do a book. So yeah. um, that's essentially how the book came to be. And the, the title of the book, it's interesting. It's infertility's a curation. Infertility's, it's plural. Why is that? Yeah. So a little bit of what I was getting at um, is that 
infertility is not just a one-size-fits-all diagnosis. Um, infertility uh, is really a condition that can be caused by a variety of different things. So um, for myself, like I said, I have unexplained infertility, but people can have um, face infertility because of, you know, um, being diagnosed with cancer and having to undergo cancer treatment and then um, having to, if they want to have a family, right, be be asked um, essentially to use fertility treatment to conceive. Um, individuals, right, LGBTQ plus individuals um, have social infertility, somewhat what it's called, um, with the idea that, you know, you need access to alternative forms of um, sperm or egg, uh, for instance, to carry a pregnancy or to have um, a child as well. And so what we're really trying to do with infertility is um, break through that idea, right, that there's one diagnosis, but also the book tries to point towards um, in the end that there's also a variety of different ways in which infertility is resolved. So really contesting against those ideas that um, it always ends up successful with a uh-huh. with a child in hand um and actually you know we know that that doesn't always happen and that can also be another harmful narrative that gets per- perpetuated so um the idea is that you know resolution can come in all sorts of choices um whether that's right to adopt whether that's to stop treatment altogether and to live child free um that everyone's right to kind of come to their own resolution so we're trying to do that with the title because there's so many different uh, kinds, and I- I'm just curious, how how prevalent is infertility? Do we do we really know the magnitude of of the problem? I mean, it's, again, it's you know a lot of silence around it. People haven't really taken uh, attention to it. Yeah. So um, in the past, the World Health Organization uh, has always claimed that it's been about one in eight couples. Um, to live with infertility. And then recently, right around the publication of this book, um, they changed it and updated that statistic to be one in six persons. So we know, for instance, that there is um, a much larger number of constituents living with infertility around um, not just the US, right, but around the world. Um, And there's, again, a variety of different reasons for that. And we also know that that statistic, right, may uh, not always be accurate in terms of also uh, including individuals who might be, for instance, single parents by choice, uh, who again, have to go through um, fertility types of treatment in order to um, have a family of their own. So um, there's lots of different uh, statistics. And while we don't know, for instance, the precise number, um, I think just the one in six and the fact that it's growing um, and that we're kind of raising alarm to it is is something that is signifying that um, it's becoming more of an issue and that more people are needing to have access to uh, more options to form their family. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Maria Novotny, who's a co-curator, co-editor of a new book called Infertilities. And uh, it's it's about choice and how, you know, people just happen to, you know, we talk about having a reproductive choice, but if your body's not functioning that way, and there's many different causes, I, I assume, it's... Uh, it can be really hard. What what are the, some of the known psychological effects of re, of receiving an infertility diagnosis? How does that affect people's psychology? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of um, just 
statistics on depression um, and the need, right, to really seek out not just uh, physical care, right, um, so seeing a reproductive endocrinologist, but also just the need to see um, a mental health therapist, uh, because you have lots of um, processes that you're going through, right, the idea that you're grieving, the idea of how you might conceive a child, um, it can cause a lot of strain on relationships for a lot of couples, right? Um, they might think, especially um, ones who might be married and then want to conceive right away, that can be uh, an infertility diagnosis can be a, a pretty big barrier um, on that relationship and a pretty big stressor. Um, there are also um, well-known statistics that um, Ali Jomar, for instance, who uh, is a big advocate for infertility access, uh, has done studies saying and documenting that infertility, um, the stress of it, is equivalent um, and perhaps even more so of a stressor than um, those living with cancer, um, simply because there's uh, uh, not necessarily an explicit path forward of how to actually treat it, cure it, find success with it. Um, everyone's infertility is different, and so that can add a lot more stress in one person's life. Um, so there are a variety of different factors. Uh, the emotion of it gets to everyone, but then when you add um, the finances of it, uh, that adds another stressor of it. And I can tell you, living with cancer and trying a whole bunch of different treatments, I'm doing that myself right now. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it can affect your, your psychology as well. It's, it's uh, not always easy. And people, uh, yeah. It's it's not a terminal cancer, but it and there's all kinds of different treatments, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. Um, right. And I, I just there are a lot of, I mean, there's like as you say, like eh, approximately one in six uh, people who are uh, involuntarily infertile, and there are a lot of myths surrounding social and cultural challenges. Lord knows, uh, all kinds of myths. And there, but there's a, a, a common assumption that infertility mainly affects older women. Is that not true? Yeah, that's actually not true at all. Um, infertility does not discriminate uh, despite your age. It also doesn't discriminate as just a female issue either, right? Um, true. There's a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of uh, men who get diagnosed with male factor infertility. And that can also... I mean, the stigma and shame surrounding that is also um, heightened even more so simply because there are not a lot of outlets or even support groups until recently where a lot of men um, could find support and actually talk to each other. Mm. Uh, that was a new thing that happened because of COVID. Um, Resolve, for instance, the National Infertility Association started uh, allowing and having more opportunities for virtual support groups. And through that, more men have created virtual support groups. Um, in the past, if you think, for instance, I'm in a place like Milwaukee, which is a big enough city, but to have um, one male infertility support group, it would be hard to consecutively have um, a group of guys show up, know about the organization, um, and just find support. But the fact that we could now meet virtually over Zoom, um, have discussions, and also just gather resources about um, how to either treat their infertility, how to talk about it with their partners, how to talk about it, um, and talk about options with their with their providers, um, it's really been a game changer, I would say, in terms of uh, being able to have access to that. And, you know, while culturally we have made some progress, 
There are the forces who are against uh, moving forward, shall we say. And there are still some straight men who have this need to feel macho. And we've seen the effects of that uh, ripple across <laughs> the country. And it's really awful. I have an old saying. It's not true that macho usually gets you into trouble. What's true is macho always gets you into trouble. Uh, tell us some of the issues surrounding male factor infertility. And I wonder how often you know, the issue is with, is with the male. And what are some of the issues surrounding male infer, uh, factor infertility? Yeah, so there's been a study done um, by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Uh, I believe it was done in 2017 or 2018. I can't recall the exact date um, where they documented essentially that for those living with infertility, one third of that diagnosis is um, a female factor related issues. So that could be endometriosis or diminished ovarian reserve, for instance. One third um, of those living with an infertility diagnosis is unexplained or a com combination. And then one third um, is just male factor infertility. So while we have myths, right, that this is largely an older woman, older mm -hmm. white woman type mm. of disease, right? The reality is, right, it's pretty split um, amongst the possibilities of um, of uh, how you can have an infertility diagnosis. And so for men living with it, some of it can be, for instance, azospermia, where there is little to no sperm. Um, some of it can be a mor morphology issue even. So the idea that the sperm isn't uh, correctly uh, morphed to actually um, swim, for instance. Uh -huh. And some of it um, can be motility as well. Mm. Um, so the idea, right, that you just go see a reproductive endocrinologist and deal um, with one's infertility it's simply not the case. And there's been a lot more um, urologists kind of coming up um, and talking more about different ways to treat explicitly male infertility. One, um, one urologist that we've been able to work with in the past, um, who's been a great kind of proponent of talking about infertility from the male perspective is Dr. Paul Turek. Um, and he's based out in California, but uh, he worked for a long time um, on the men's health initiative uh, that, Barack Obama set up when uh, he was in presidency. So um, he's a great advocate. And I would he also has a great blog, too. So I would say to any of your listeners who are interested in male infertility or have experiences with that, to just check out Paul Turek's blog. Um, Turek is spelled T-U-R-E-K. Uh-huh. And he reminded me, I've heard men in the past, being a man myself, uh, somebody say, I heard one guy say to another guy, Oh, what's the matter? You shooting blanks? You know, it's like right. Ha ha. Right. It's you know, it's it's hard. It's not easy. You know, and and to put that down and and somehow feel less than, yikes! That's not helpful stuff at all. And back to you know my experience in the New Hampshire State Senate, trying to require the insurance industry to mm -hmm. to cover it. I, I still it it amazed me. I just was so shocked. Tell us. Still, and it's expensive. It is expensive. And of course, they don't want to do that. They don't want to spend their money. Last time I checked, which was a long time ago, it was like $10,000 a, a try. And it often takes more than one try. What's, is, has there been movement in the insurance industry? What is the attitude of the insurance industry? Top brass, the decision makers on expanding coverage for like IVF and uh, other uh, treatments. 
Yeah, there's been some progress. So, so for yourself, right, New Hampshire was one of the first, one of the first, right, to really start having those conversations years ago. Um, now, I think we're up to 21 or 22 states that have an insurance uh, mandate um, for for some sort of fertility coverage. Um, I'm living in the state of Wisconsin, um, where uh, neighboring states like Illinois, for instance, have a mandate, um, but we do not. And so access to that is really challenging. And we're working right now on a state uh, basis in Wisconsin to do some advocacy to really introduce it. But we've gotten a lot of pushback because it is it is so um, expensive and providers don't want to cover it. Um, and I think they don't want to cover it for a variety of of reasons, but largely because they still, many still see it as an elective disease. Um, and huh. so I was trying to point back, right, that this, this is an elective disease that it's basic healthcare, especially for people like, like who have gone through cancer treatments and simply want access to be able to build a family after, you know, beating, beating their cancer diagnosis. Um, or having right, a real condition like diminished ovarian reserve or endometriosis, right, and needing access to it. So really understanding infertility is not elective, I think, is mm-hmm. really combating that narrative um, and some of the challenges. And what we're trying to do is, you know, it's good for for states' economies, right, to have uh-huh. access to that treatment. So we've seen, you know, and... I've talked to providers in Wisconsin who know that their patients have left or considered leaving the state um, to, you know, mm-hmm. get employment in a place like Illinois so they can have coverage um, to build their families. And so ultimately, this is going to hurt, you know, economies um, and the future growth of certain states that simply remain resistant to it. Um, So again, we're trying to build in that this is good economic value um, and just a good value in general, right, to be um, supportive of, you know, any sort of reproductive health need a citizen might have. And as as much as the right tries to uh, deny it, the reality is that economic strength comes from the demand side not from the supply side. And if there are mm-hmm. more people, there's more demand. <laughs> it does. But go ahead. No, no, I was just going to agree agree with you. Um, right. And it's also, you know, as you're seeing a little bit in your intro, it's a pro-family uh, right. position to be on. Absolutely. It's a pro-family. So um, it, it is surprising. But we live in a polarizing space. Yeah, we sure yeah. do. They they say one thing and then do something completely different, as we all know. And one of the things about a functioning democracy, it it requires people to be involved. I mean, you're not going to have a real democracy if people feel left out, if they're not able to participate in that democracy. Inclusiveness is an essential aspect. And we're finally somewhat slowly, but we're getting there, moving away from discrimination against people who are not heterosexual. Uh, are there barriers? <laughs> you can imagine uh, the, the, the resistance <laughs> to equal, mar- equal marriage uh, laws in New Hampshire was rather appalling, but we, we beat that one back eventually. Anyway, are there barriers unique to the LGBTQ plus people, community when it comes to infertility? Do they have special barriers? 
Uh, well, of course. I mean, some is just simply access, right, <laughs> to to uh, right access to a sperm, um, access even if individuals need um, donor embryos, access um, to adoption. And so there are also just laws sometimes in place or preferences put into place, for instance, um, at some religious adoption agencies that will discriminate based off of uh, sexuality. So um, what we're trying to do with this book, right, again, is raise awareness to any sort of discriminatory policies um, that make family building even more difficult and impaired. Um, and so there, as I would say, the reproductive health um, environment becomes, again, polarizing um, and hostile. And as the LGBTQ uh, environment becomes some uh, some of those proponents against it become more hostile. Um, we see a correlation between that. So um, again, increased hostility against placing um, a child with an LGBTQ plus couple um, based again on sexuality, and then also just individuals' right access to um, if they're able to actually uh, carry a child, um, but access to donor embryo, for instance. Uh, and, and, you know, if people want to have a family, you know, it, it, to think that, you know, it has to be just uh, one man and one woman, it's, uh, I mean, that's gone on for forever, really, that, uh, you know, and, and if people want to be parents, they want to be parents, you know, and it, it, single parents is, there's a lot of single parents in this world, and they do, you know, if they choose to be parents, well, there you go. Uh, you know, it, it's they want to. That's a good thing. What about people who choose to be single parents? How how difficult is getting uh, infertility treatment, or even you know, just societally, uh, the, the difficulties that single parents may face? Uh, you know, in terms of attitudes, things like that. Yeah, I so wish that my uh, co-editor Robin Silverglide was on because Robin herself is a single parent by choice. Um, and so Robin has written a lot about this, um, but there's just one, um, <laughs> the ability right to access and financially afford um, access to, for instance, sperm or access to um, an egg or a surrogate in order to carry um, that child. So there's, there's difficulty in terms of that. Um, uh, also, just difficulty in terms of financially um, being able to to afford that as well, um, and then also just the ability of um, you know navigating life as a single parent and um, advocating for yourself all the time, right? That one's a single parent, that one needs certain um, certain boundaries or access to childcare um, in different ways that those who are able to. Um, parent uh as a couple or in a partnership um simply you know can split that split that uh burden a little bit more um and it doesn't of course mean that it is a burden but more so that they're just real um constraints right uh that us who live in a very heteronormative type of world right. don't always see on a daily basis um and so i think robin's work in in the book uh and she writes beautifully about this really kind of um brings that perspective into being about you know what it means um not just to have the desire to become a parent um, and make the decision to be a single parent but also how that lingers on um throughout one's ability 
uh, of actually raising a child. So one of her pieces actually talks a little bit about the idea of how she was able to um, raise raise one of her children and then had this desire to to uh, parent again and to become pregnant again. Um, and yet uh, questioning all of what that would mean um, and actually uh, going through with that decision as someone who's, you know, working as a full-time professor and then raising their mm-hmm. two children. Um, yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. And again, for those who just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about infertilities, what it means, why it's not really talked about and how important it is to a fully functioning democracy. Our guest today is Maria Novotny, who's a co-curator, co-editor of a new book, Infertilities, A Curation. And I wonder about relationships, you know, just a regular, regular, uh, you know, two-person relationship. There can be some real stress there if there's some infertility. I mean, of course, it can be, you know, the blame game can happen. What do, what do we know about the stress on relationships from the many aspects of, of infertility? Yeah, it can be really um, challenging. Oftentimes, right, it's not something that you get prepared for whatsoever. Even if you go through any sort of counseling, um, you know, you get prepared for how to manage a budget or prepared for, you know, you have discussions about if you're religious, like what religion, right, you might you might practice or decide to follow if you come from different religious backgrounds, um, et cetera, things like that. Infertility is a totally new ball game. I mean, you have decisions that you're trying to make about how much money you're willing to kind of throw at infertility, um, oh, especially yeah. if you live in a state that doesn't have right um, any insurance coverage about what type of treatment you want to do. Um, you also just have like really hard decisions even about biology, uh, how important it is if you need um, for someone to have a biological child um, for various reasons or if individuals are open to, um, you know, using a donor embryo where there won't be um, any sort of biological connection or even using donor sperm um, and, you know, a man being okay with not having a biological connection to that child or going through adoption. Um, Mm. Those are a lot of new found decisions that require a lot of discernment, um, a lot of open and honesty. Um, And sometimes Mm. that can cause ends to relationships, quite honestly. It can also cause strains um, beyond just one's own partnerships, but strains with, um, you know, other family members. So Mm. um, parents, sisters, brothers, um, even friends, right, who are all, you know, well-meaning for the most part, right, in terms Mm -hmm. of helping individuals see them through this really difficult time. But not, again, knowing what to say, how to say things, um, how to announce, you know, a a pregnancy that might be in the family, um, how to prepare individuals for that. That's really difficult. Um, And there's not like a a playbook or a handbook Mm -hmm. to go by. Um, (laughs) And and so those are all sorts of relationship stressors that, again, can really cause big fractures um, in, in going through the disease. Yeah. I can imagine. And I guess it's it's taboo to even talk about 
uh, when an infertility treatment doesn't work at the first try. And, you know, because I don't know how often it does work at the first try, but probably I, I know it often doesn't work at the first try. Why is it, uh, you know, hard to even talk about uh, if it doesn't work? You don't want to talk about it? What? Tell us about that. I mean, I think everyone deals with that um, on a case-by-case basis. So there's a lot of individuals who I think are really, you know, you're putting a lot into this this first round, right, um, of treatment and really hoping that it works. And you're right, it often doesn't. Um, often something else happens, um, you know, the transfer date won't work, um, the embryo uh, isn't viable for any reason. Um, and when that happens, you know, it can, it's, it's another type of loss on top of the loss of just having an infertility diagnosis. And, um, sometimes it's so painful. I think a lot of individuals don't want to actually talk about it, um, or know how to talk about it. Um, sometimes there's individuals who actually don't even tell people that they're going through treatment. Um, Uh and again, I think it's a really case by case basis depending again, how one feels about those relationships or if they have other structures in place. And I think that's really where the power of like support groups comes into to being. Um, a lot of people will be open and have their, their strong networks where they can be honest and ask all the questions and just be raw in that support group um, versus uh, no one always wants to be raw or they want to be, you know, strong or they don't want everyone knowing about everything. They want to just tell them good news, not bad news. And so that's a different type of, you know, emotional weight sometimes that people have to navigate. And so they don't always tell um, everyone because it's, again, not just thinking about their feelings, but sometimes it becomes a burden in terms of um, figuring out how to emotionally handle telling your mother or telling your dad that it didn't work um, and navigating their feelings through it on top of your own. And so sometimes it's just easier to not until you have good news. Wow. Mm. All the secrets that we have, and uh, getting the secrets out is generally a good thing. And I know in in many traumatic situations, way beyond just you know the one that we're talking about, creating pictures can be good therapy. How do you've done some research into this and 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 knowledge of how creative practices such as creating art and writing aid with the grieving and healing process? Can it help? perhaps address feelings of inadequacy and failure? What, what is the unique role that art can play? Yeah, I think because it can be so difficult to talk about, you know, a cycle that didn't work or to talk about, you know, the details of the, I mean, the physical pain of going through a treatment. I mean, there is, there is pain with like an egg retrieval, for instance, right? There is pain with going through, um, an HSG uh, to see if uh, one's tubes are blocked, for instance. I mean, there is physical pain. And being able to portray that, um, again, sometimes words, as someone who's a rhetorician, they they aren't enough um, to actually convey that full embodied experience. And so um, what we found with our organization and with working with a variety of patients 
um, across the U.S. is that um, reflecting on one's experiences with infertility by using creative outlets through like painting, like a sculpture, like um, sketching, those can be really helpful outlets to capture the fullness of that experience, but also um, can be rewarding in the fact that they kind of serve as a practice and a reminder that one's own body, while it might be feeling like it can't actually create, it can't procreate for some um, naturally, one could say, that that the practice of actually creating um, some sort of visually pretty thing um, reminds us that our bodies actually are still creative. They are still capable of making something new, of making something beautiful, even if we have this pain right now that we're dealing with um, the inability of creating that child that we all are trying to actually conceive. Um, and so that's been really beneficial just from a patient perspective. But then our ability to also you know, curate all of these pieces of art, put them together, put them in an open gallery for people to come in and experience. That's also been really um, beneficial in terms of the grief, allowing, inviting, you know, one's parent or one's sister to come in, see some of these um, collective experiences that are represented through a visual medium um, and allowing them to kind of see and connect with, again, that embodied experience. I, it provides a different level of communication than mm. what words would. Yeah, the value of that is is quite impressive. And I know that uh, uh, there have been uh, exhibits where children, for example, you know, who, who've lived under terrible conditions, bombing, you know, in wars, they they draw pictures and they and it helps get it out there and kind of just uh, it help. I, I I can't help but think that it helps one get on top of the situation and not not be you know necessarily uh, uh, underneath it all the time, but just to express it and to get it out there in a way that words can't necessarily do. Um, let's see here. Uh, what what are the continuing needs for advocacy? Specifically regarding legislation, what are, what are the hurdles and the goals that if people care about this, they might be able to do something, you know, with their state legislature? And I do want to remind people that, hey, these state legislators, they want to hear from you, whether they know it or not. But it really makes a difference if they hear from their constituents. So what are the needs regarding uh, that area of the uh, the issue? Yeah, so you're right. So there's a lot of work being done in terms of advocacy for, um, again, improving access to to fertility treatment, um, both at a state level and then at a federal level. So for anyone who's interested in um, learning more about this, I would highly encourage them to go to Resolve, so that's R-E-S-O-L-V-E, which is the National Infertility Association. Um, and they're kind of the leading organization that's really doing um, and leading the way in terms of federal and state-based um, advocacy initiatives. Um, and so depending upon where you are in your state um, listening, there are a variety of different um bills or uh, smaller local-based organizations that individuals can connect with um, to learn more about how, um, what type of legislation is 
either available or coming up um, in your state legislature or um, other initiatives to hopefully create some sort of um, state bill that could help provide um, equitable access to care. Mm. So um, I was just looking at Resolve as you were talking, Bert. Um, so for New Hampshire, there's a bill, SB 198, that Resolve has listed, and that's um, about directing the insurance department to conduct a cost study of providing coverage for certain reproductive health care. Um, and so that's something that's been retained on committee as of, I guess, May 10th of this year. Um, Oh, go ahead. Well, I was thinking? just saying, lots of states probably have similar things. Uh, a lot of people out west uh, listen to this show as well, and there are lots of those things going on, whether you know it or not. They're happening, and and hearing from their constituents really makes a difference. Now, it's true when the insurance industry comes in and says, "No, we don't like this. It'll cost us too much money." That has that has a lot of weight, too. I mean, let's face reality here, you know. Uh, as Bob Dylan said, money doesn't talk, it swears. And uh, they, they, <laughs> the lobbyists have some serious power. Uh, but it can, be, it can be done, and it has been done, as you were saying. Yeah, no, it has been done. I mean, um, there's a lot of great work, like Colorado, for instance, was um, a great example of an organi- of a state-based coalition that was able to work with Resolve and get um, great coverage passed. So, yeah, I encourage you to kind of Resolve has a state action um, legislation map that kind of tells you if there's any sort of bill um, that's up for consideration, or and or like will connect you to uh, that local coalition. Um, that might be organizing in your area. But federally too, Resolve is great because they host a federal advocacy day that's Ah. virtual. Um, That happens every year in the spring. Um, So this past year was in April. I think it's gonna be a little bit later this year, but that's really um, an effort to provide federal mandates um, for access to fertility care. So, that's been work that they've been trying to do for a long time. It's great because you connect with individuals across the U.S. Um, and you're able to to meet with your um, state senators and whoever your um, congressional representative representative would be. Um, and you also are able to do that, you know, through great training that Resolve provides you. Uh-huh. Um, if you're unable to attend that, you can also uh, write letters to your senators um, and to your congressperson, oh, yeah. um, asking them to support that bill, why it's important. Um, Patty Murray, who's out in Washington, oh, yes. Senator Patty Murray, has always been a great leading champion of this. Um, same with uh, Senator Tan- uh, Duckworth out of uh-huh. um, Illinois. She's been wonderful um, and really has opened up also about her um, need, right, to have um, coverage in order to build her own family, especially as a veteran. Um, So for a long time, um, there was a lot of inequitable access for veterans uh, in order to have any sort of VA coverage for fertility treatment. Um, Slowly, we're getting that better. So there is some coverage through TRICARE, um, but it could be better and it could be improved. And so if you're a vet and you're listening and you want to help support your other vets who may have, you know, have wounds that they sustained in combat or they have uh-huh. partners um, who sustained, you know, injury in combat um, to really think about this issue from that terms, that sort of perspective um, and resolve again is a great champion for any veterans 
um, and, who are trying to access better care and working through the VA system for that. And it's it, it's not superfluous. This is something that's really important. And and veterans, my goodness, you know, especially if they've received wounds and being you know active in the choice movement uh, for many many years. More, I would have thought it would have been mm-hmm. resolved years and years ago, but <laughs> but uh, it's not. And there's that old saying: every child a wanted child, you know. And how complicated. Is that and to have you know people want to have children? We should. It, this is something that's important for our, our society. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're talking about infertility. A new book, Infertilities: A Curation. Our guest today is uh, Maria Novotny, who is one of the uh, co-curators of the aspect and one of the uh, common assumptions. Uh, and attitudes regarding racial health inequities factor into the experience uh, of infertility for people of color. How do common assumptions factor into that experience of infertility for people of color? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think I much of my work, um, I work with great colleagues that are based out of North Carolina and do work with, you know, the March of Dimes um, and, uh, maternal mortality um and in talking with them even about about the ways in which their work and my work intersect we often think about persons of color specifically black and brown women um and this false narrative again of the hyper fertile person um hyper fertile black or brown woman um and that simply just is not the case with infertility. And it's a very problematic um, narrative that continues to get reinforced, um, right, with through ideas of like the welfare mother, um, for example, right, right, um, right, and those tropes. And the reality is, is that the research points to the fact that black and brown women are more likely to experience infertility um, due to a variety of different subconditions. Um, so that might be PCOS or diminished ovarian reserve um, or ovarian cysts. Um, they are more likely to experience this. And yet at the same time, there's a lot more um, social stigma around it, around um, the ability of talking about it. And so there've been great organizations throughout the years that have kind of raised awareness um, and provided space, a safe space, a trusting space for black and brown women to come together. So examples of that are like Fertility for Colored Girls, Uh, which is a national organization. Yeah. Do you know them? No, I don't, but it's a good title. It's pretty clear. Yes, yes, yes. Or another one is the Broken Brown Egg. Um, And they've been around for many years um, and really are amplifying right black and brown experiences of infertility to try and counter a lot of those false um false narratives right that uh for instance we've had someone through the art of uh infertility participated and she's a black woman as well and she has this very powerful quote that says essentially like you just look at me and boom you know you think i'm going to be pregnant right away um and she says you know advocating even to your own doctor about that sometimes can be difficult as well um and so this book is really again trying to um not produce right um a white heteronormative narrative of this experience but again to really represent um larger 
scenes and um, difficulties of being right persons of color um, and needing to access care, but also needing right different types of community of support that really understand um, the cultural conditions that are, you know, weighing heavily on experiences of infertility that perhaps, you know, white patients simply are not going to experience in the same way. Assumptions. Yeah, we know about assumptions, and there are an awful lot of assumptions. You're right. And for individuals experiencing infertility, I wonder, is family building success always defined by pregnancy and the birth of a child? Is it then, you know, wrapped up nicely, all tied with the bow? That's the end of the story. But as uh, your your colleague uh, Robin wrote, that sometimes the experience of infertility is temporarily or temporarily, temporarily linear, but emotionally recursive. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, the idea of this is, you know, success comes in many different ways, shapes, and forms. Um, some people are able to succeed with um, a take-home baby through, you know, the first round of IVF, and those people, I would say, are really lucky. Um, for a lot of people, that's simply not the case. Um, that it's going to take a couple different treatments, a couple maybe different types of treatments. It might take a couple different breaks. Um, and I think what Robin was really pointing at with the wonderful quote you just uh, included is the fact that no matter where or how you resolve one's infertility, um, even if it's with a child or not, um, that the experience of infertility continues to be a part of one's identity. Um, it's not a chapter that just gets closed nicely. Um, some people may want that um, initially and want that pain to go away. Um, but mm. our book is really pointing to the fact that it always is coming up. Um, even in my own experiences, I I say that I resolved my family through adoption. So I had a domestic adoption. Um, and I still find myself needing to connect with my infertility support group, for instance, because I'm encountering questions of, are you going to have another child? Or why does your child have blonde hair? Um, when will you mm. give her a sibling? Things like that. And they're all well-meaning, and I fully mm. understand that. Um, but there's still also just a lot of pain and renegotiation that I need to think through personally and then also how this impacts my child um, with how I want to answer those questions and how much I want to disclose. Um, disclosure can be risky, right? Um, it leaves you feeling vulnerable in ways that other people who can naturally conceive simply don't have to be as vulnerable. Mm. Um, but in me choosing to you know, believe in advocacy and trying to, you know, dismantle any sort of shame or stigma around this. Um, I try to be more open about that. No, not everyone can be that way. Right. Um, and I'm privileged enough to do that because I have, you know, I come from a particular class and I have a PhD and I can talk about this. Um, but again, if, you know, you're thinking about, um, other individuals, right, who don't have the same type of like social cultural class, um, they might not be able to always disclose that. And so it's another type of um, stigma um, and just pain that can carry with them, even if they're able to, you know, luckily have a child if that's what they so desire as their resolution. One final question Why is reconsideration of infertility more urgent now in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to? reverse Roe versus Wade. How, how does that affect people experiencing infertility in states where abortion is illegal? 
Well, a couple different reasons. One, um, for instance, anyone that's going through infertility has a likelihood, right, of also going through some sort of miscarriage or needing reproductive health care, um, which might require them to have um, an abortion that might be um, illegal in their state. So there's simply, um, uh, right, uh, access to, to reproductive care needs that simply might cause um, actual health issues. Um, but then there's also issues of simply access to to embryos, for instance, right? Um, and so there was a panic, for instance, in my state of Wisconsin for a little bit about individuals who had embryos that were frozen um, and living in Wisconsin where abortion is illegal as of right now. Um, individuals worried that they that personhood uh bills would essentially deem embryos persons um and make them inaccessible and so some individuals that i knew right were really considering sending um and transferring their embryos to a more um real friendly state like illinois where they could still have access to those embryos um and so that's really where a lot of the concern is any sort of personhood bill um or initiative that's trying to regulate when and how life begins um can really cause a lot of complications for individuals who again are simply trying to you know create life um and need and require access to uh embryos um and so I encourage you, if you have personhood bills um, mm. on your ballot or in your state legislator, to really think about right how this is a complex decision um, and how that can really complicate individuals who need access, like a cancer patient, to um, frozen embryos that they may need in order to have a biological child. Well, there's a lot of real positive uh, possibilities uh, ahead of us now. I, I really thank you for being with us today. If people are interested in following up on this, the book is called Infertilities, a uh, Curation. Wh who's the publisher of it, and what can you suggest people look at on the Internet? So the publisher is Wayne State University Press, uh -huh. which we're uh -huh. thrilled with because it's a Michigan press where yeah. the project was born from. Um, yeah, and you can find it on Wayne State University Press's website. You can also go to theartofinfertility.org. Um, that's essentially the home organization where the book came out of, and you can find out information about the book and then um, a variety of different events that we're doing virtually and in person across the U.S. We're making so much progress in this uh, struggle to have democracy become more real. Thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive, and thank you for your work. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.